everyone. Welcome to the Five Beer Plane. I'm Brian, and this is the ongoing saga of an everyman's ale trail. In this episode, I'll size up the ABV of beer, chat with Tom from Two Toms Brewing in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and review Bell's Experimental IPA. In this segment of Tales from the Trail, I want to talk about what defines the amount of alcohol in beer and gives us a hoppy heart, the ABV. Worldwide, alcohol proof was the unit of measure used to determine the booziness of beverages which included beer. The term proof goes all the way back to 16th century England when spirits were taxed according to the amount of alcohol they contained. Interestingly, spirits were tested with a so-called burn-no-burn test. If a liquid containing alcohol ignited, it was above proof. A liquid that would not ignite was underproof. Liquids that would burn were defined as 100 proof and became the basis for taxation. Another not-so-repeatable method for testing the alcohol content of a liquid was the gunpowder method. In this test, gunpowder was soaked in the liquid. If the gunpowder would still burn, the liquid was above proof. Otherwise, it was underproof. The question of reliability for this method working is only because of the chemical principle that potassium nitrate, which gunpowder contains, is significantly more soluble in water than alcohol. By the time the 17th century rolled around, tests were being made in England using the specific gravity or even the specific density to define proof of alcoholic liquids. In the United States, the proof system was established in 1848 and was based on the percent alcohol instead of a specific gravity. For example, if a beverage is 100 proof, that means it contains 50% alcohol by volume. It's a small difference in philosophy that I won't go into. Today, the term proof is mostly a historical hangover. So enter ABV. ABV stands for alcohol by volume. Basically, this gives you an idea of how boozy a beverage might be. ABV is now the worldwide industry standard for measuring how much alcohol is present in a given volume of an alcoholic beverage. Canada adopted this standard in 1972 and England in 1980. In the United States, it is a legal requirement that the alcohol content be specified as percent ABV on the label. Just like everything about brewing, ABV is all about math and chemistry. I won't try and fool you into thinking that I totally understand it as I am still learning as well. But here goes. As I talked about in last episode's homebrew hijinks, the wort is created from boiling grain and contains the sugar that the yeast needs for the fermentation process which creates the beer. The way that brewers will measure the ABV of a beer is by using a hydrometer. This gives you the specific gravity of the liquid. Basically, a hydrometer is, looks just like a thermometer, except it's got a weighted bottom with some gradations at the top giving you some percentages. Specific gravity is the ratio of density relative to water at sea level. Since water is the main ingredient of beer, it is important to know its specific gravity, which is 1. This means that when you brew a beer and measure the specific gravity, the more dense it is, the higher the specific gravity and hence higher the alcoholic content. Here are a couple of practical examples from my experience. I do a fair amount of cooking, and if you've ever put oil and water together in a measuring cup, the cooking oil will always float to the top because it has a specific gravity of 0.925. If you've ordered a half and half or a black and tan from a bar, you might understand this better. Traditionally, Guinness and Harp are used for the half and half, 
and then Guinness and Bass are used for the black and tan. I have to admit there is something magical about seeing the pitch black Guinness at roughly 4.2% ABV seemingly float on top of that lighter beer. Bass Pale Ale has an ABV of 5.2%, whereas the Harp Lager has an ABV of 4.5%, making it a bit more tricky to assemble. Man, now I'm thirsty. Anyway, it's not enough to simply measure the specific gravity after the fermentation is completed. It must be done beforehand as well in order to know the difference in specific gravity. The math involved in the process is this. The ABV is equal to 105 divided by 0.79 multiplied by the difference in starting and final specific gravity divided by the final specific gravity. For example, if I'm brewing a stout, just before fermentation, I use a hydrometer and get a reading of 1.1 for the specific gravity. After fermentation is completed, I take a sample and take another measurement and get 1.04 for the specific gravity. Using the equation I just talked about, that gives me an ABV of 7.7%, which fits pretty well within the expectations I might have for that particular style of beer. Though the mobile app doesn't have this capability, it is possible to use filtering on the web version of Untapped to look back and see what beers have my highest ABV. Here are some of the highest ABV beers that I have had. Fruit Braggot by Brewery Becker, which is a Braggot Mead coming in at 20% ABV. Viking Blood by Dansk Mjod, a Mead Methylgen, 19% ABV. 120 Minute IPA by Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, a double IPA coming in at 18% ABV. Gavel Slammer Monumental Dark Ale by Hop and Frog Brewery, a Dark Ale coming in at 17.4% ABV. The 2022 version of Dragon's Milk Triple Mash by New Holland Brewing, a double imperial stout coming in at 17.3% ABV. Big Ass Money Stout 3 by Evil Twin Brewing, another double imperial stout coming in at 17.2% ABV. And then finally, Demons Surround Me Ghost 1105 by Adroit Theory Brewing, a Russian imperial stout coming in at 17% ABV. In this segment of Homebrew Hijinks, it's time to pitch the yeast. If you've been following my homebrew journey so far and listened to some of my interviews from the previous season, you know that I've had this homebrew kit for two years and have been dragging my feet. I'm kind of glad I did. This gave me the opportunity to hear from industry professionals and get their sage advice. I think it was Corey from Twin Oast who first suggested it, but the more and more I've talked about homebrewing with other professionals, the consensus was that fresher is better. If I use my cooking experience in the same way, if I liken the ingredients used for brewing to the ingredients used for smoking a nice pork butt, it's not that much different. While I'm kind of stingy when it comes to my spices, I've learned over the years that the fresher the spice, the better your food is going to taste. If I use two tablespoons of five-year-old cracked black pepper to season the meat, it's going to come off a bit flat. However, if I use the same amount of some fresh cracked black pepper my cousin from Wisconsin sent me, it's going to shine and have that nice bite that pepper should impart. The same goes for brewing. Your beer is only going to be as fresh as the ingredients you use. While I didn't mention it in the previous episode, I purchased all new hops and new yeast from Bell's General Store in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's a great place if you're looking for homebrew supplies. Because I'm methodical in the way I carry out certain tasks, I decided to pour each of the old hop pellets into a small bowl one by one so I could compare them to the new hops. 
from aroma to color, it was like night and day. Yeast is the same. With old and tired yeast, you may not get a proper fermentation for your beer. For a one gallon kit, you can live with losing a couple hours of brew time, a gallon of water, and maybe $20 worth of ingredients. However, when you're scaled up to a five barrel system, this could mean hundreds of dollars in ingredients and lost profit of over 7,000 bottles of beer, which is not insignificant for a small brewery. So back to my beer. While the wort was cooling, I needed to take care of the most important part of the brewing process, sanitizing my fermentation gear. I filled my one gallon pitcher with hot water and dissolved one of the rinse-free sanitizing packs in it. I then soaked my stopper, airlock, and kitchen scissors in the solution to ensure that they were clean and then set them aside on a clean dish towel. I poured the sanitizing solution in my fermentation jug, screwed on the lid, and then swirled it around to ensure that all surfaces had made contact with the solution and then opened the spigot over the sink to let the solution make its way through there as well. I removed the lid and set it aside on the clean dish towel. I poured the sanitizing solution back into my pitcher as I needed to fill the airlock partway with the solution. Since this first batch of beer was truly an experience to understand the process, other than keeping the times noted in the instruction provided, I was not terribly scientific and methodical about it. For future recipes, I'll do my due diligence and take a temperature measurement with an instant thermometer to make sure I pitch the yeast at the optimum temperature and can get some repeatability. Next, I carefully poured the cooled wort from the stock pot into my fermenter jug, taking care not to let too much of the settlement from the hops make their way in. I didn't want to have that in my bottles. I have to admit that the liquid was kind of an unattractive dark greenish-brown hue, which concerned me at first. But thinking about the ingredients used up till now, a brown mash and green hot pellets are bound to color things like that. I have to give another shout-out to Trevor from One Well Brewing for making himself available for questions while all this was going on. The yeast packet from the kit was 4 ounces, and the new yeast packet from Bell's was 11 ounces, and I didn't know how much of the new packet to use. His suggestion was to put all the yeast into the wort and just let it go crazy. So I used the scissors that I had sanitized to cut open each yeast packet and carefully sprinkled them on top of the wort. I screwed the lid tightly on the fermenter, filled the airlock with the solution, and then pressed it into the rubber stopper to seal up my system. I drain poured the remaining sanitizing solution, dumped the rest of my hot matter outside, because I didn't want that clogging up my drain, and then washed the stock pot for another day. Next time, it's all about fermentation. Now, it's time for Barstool Banter. This episode, I'm sitting down with someone who I personally think is one of the superstars of brewing in Northeast Indiana. Tom Carpenter from Two Toms Brewing in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's a down-to-earth guy who loves brewing. Listen in to learn more about what they're up to in Northeast and now Central Indiana. Tom, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Can you tell me what your role is there at the brewery? Um, so I'm the owner, uh, head brewer, and then kind of do a little bit of every, everything, so repair things sometimes, do a lot of our social media, marketing, kind of bookkeeping, you name it. So a little bit of everything. But I mean, that's small business for you. Yeah, I don't think people realize just how much of your own uh, effort goes into running a business. You know, you're the, the owner and the head brewer, but all these other things somebody has to, has to accomplish and take care of. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. How long has your brewery been open? Um, we are... 
just about four and a half years. They're just crested that. So okay. this summer in July, we'll be celebrating five years open. Excellent. That's great. Uh, how long have you personally been brewing, Tom? Three years prior to that, I was home brewing. Started in uh, the summer of 2015. Okay. And quickly started kind of after we gained some popularity, kind of just with the homebrew and other people kind of suggesting that we move kind of forward. We started researching just kind of a business plan. I knew just with my business background and stuff, that aspect was easy to me. What I didn't know is like, you know, how people would take kind of to the beer and, and, and so on. But, uh, you know, starting out was never my intent as a home brewer to, to open up a brewery. It was just uh, supposed to be a hobby and uh, it kind of just took off from there. Do you have any advice uh, for me as a brand new home brewer? I uh, just started my first batch uh, a week ago. Okay. I, I think, you know, when you start uh, looking at, I guess, fresh hops, fresh grain, but then pay a lot of attention to your yeast as well. When I started doing yeast starters, when I started delving into different types of yeast and, and really ensuring the health of the yeast rather than just purely just pitching it, you know, and looking at kind of the true temperature of fermentation, I think that's when the beer styles that I was brewing kind of really started to take off and improve. So. Okay. Yeah. This one's a uh, session. I think it's a one gallon kit from I think Northern Brewer. Okay. And, uh, it's been, it's been fun yeah. so far. I mean, the yeast like went crazy for the first couple of days and then it was yeah. done. So I got kind of scared. I'm like, Ooh, I think something's wrong, but I think the yeast is just finally finished chewing on the sugars and now mm-hmm. it just needs to set and I don't know, rest a bit, I guess. So yep. Yep. it's one of the things that, that I've heard from other brewers is that time is kind of that fifth ingredient. You know, it, it's very tempting to pull a beer early uh, out of being in the fermentation process and uh, you've really got to let it set and do its thing. Yeah. And, and batch to batch, sometimes you could brew this same, you know, this same batch and you could see that, you know, maybe it ferments fully out like in five days, you know, or, or sometimes it could take a little bit longer, a little mm-hmm. bit less. So there's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes there's, there's so many different variables from temperature to, the sugar extraction that you're getting kind of, you know, in your mash, there's a number of kind of different things that could kind of impact that. Yeah. Two Toms is definitely one of my favorite stops when I drop into Fort Wayne. I look back, it was August, 2020, when I stopped by for the first time, you've got a lot of great events that you put on there. Um, the frozen Furkin fest is one that I've attended, I think the last three years. And I yep. see you've got your anniversary hula party. That's in the summertime. So one of the other latest excuses I get to come to the Fort Wayne tap room is beer school. How did that come about? We looked at, you know, just the use of the barrel room. So we, we that's a space that folks could kind of rent for parties or get-togethers or other things. We also, you know, want to experiment kind of with beer dinners and other things. But then I, I've seen, and I've, you know, been to breweries where they go a little bit deeper. You know, um, our tours have been popular in the past, but this is a way to kind of go deeper into the subject of beer and kind of we carve out different topics. So, so I mean, the history of beer uh, to kind of explaining sours, to explaining how to taste beer, you know, the average craft beer drinker dives into all these things, but take a step back and understand some of the flavor profiles or other things that go into making beer. It kind of helps kind of the appreciation with that. So we decided to 
carve out a, a four class series that we do about once a quarter to go over different projects and stuff. This topic is going to be all things kind of barrel aging. So go okay. kind of through the history of barrel aging to how it imparts kind of flavors. How do I select barrels? How do you go through the process of knowing when to pull it out of a barrel? all the different aspects of some of those things and then what it imparts to kind of beer itself. It's fun. And then kind of through that, you also get to sample and taste whatever that topic is. So sometimes like in the sour category, we had everything from kettle sours to long-term age sours and kind of everything in between and tasting some of those nuances of what you get out of you know, each thing brings to light a new craft beer experience. So it's a way to kind of give back, make it fun and uh, a unique experience kind of, you know, for the craft beer. Yeah, I like the classes. I think that they are accessible for both the novice as well as the advanced craft beer drinker, yeah. honestly. So I really like what you and the crew are doing there with that. So kudos. I think that's a great way to uh, get people more interested and kind of fill that void of learning more. Yeah. I know you enjoy sours because I was at that sour class last fall. And uh, when we were there, you took us on a little tour and you've got your cool ship now. When can we expect to see some spontaneous fermented beer from Two Toms? So we did our first batch through the cool ship back, uh, I believe it was in November. So this is the time of year when it's cooler that we could actually produce those style beers. So basically mashing, boiling like we normally would, but then it's racked over into that cool ship. We, it's near the back overhead door and it allows the beer to just accept air, you know, from the atmosphere, but then naturally cool. In that process, you know, the beer, rather than pitching yeast into it, takes up you know natural microbes and other things and bacteria that's in the air and then spontaneously ferments you know through that we are going to be looking at a process to it's called method goose so we cannot produce goose in the u.s unlike goza goza is a different style goose is taking lambics that are made kind of in Belgium the way they do. And they do a blend of a three-year, a two-year, and a one-year. So it's a three-year process to kind of truly do that. We're looking to first and foremost, start a program that ushers us towards that. Um, with that though, I think, you know, we can look to do other blends and other things that pop up kind of in the future. So we're probably looking at least a year out for any kind of small releases and a good okay. three years from kind of truly what we envision what this is going to do for us so we have one batch through it i'm hoping to you know brew another batch here soon just so we could have a sampling of barrels that are inoculated and beers that are, are fermenting along and then we'll do some testing or tasting and blending and other things kind of in the future so do you typically choose the cooler weather just simply because it allows the, the beer to cool off quicker yeah, you're wanting to cool the beer off at least, you know, within a 24-hour period window or, or less. Okay. Just uh, the longer it sets, you could kind of have just other spoilage or other, it stays too warm for too long. So um, generally you see even kind of, you know, any brewery out there that's doing it, it's usually kind of in the fall to winter months that they mm -hmm. they choose to kind of do that. It's good on the cooling side. Um, you don't have as much microflora or other kind of things in the air sure. per se. So there are some that are kind of experimenting with 
running it through a heat exchanger, cooling it down so much, but then having just a cool, maybe summer night to experiment with that. I know, you know, Russian River's done a bit of that and others. So it's still kind of a new area for U.S. brewers in general doing it. And there's all different experimentation with it, which kind of makes it exciting because, you know, there's a little bit of a uncontrolled methodology going on with it. So you're not sure what you're going to get, whether it be good, bad, or sometimes it's pretty magical. And I like that about the uh, the American craft industry is that you as a brewer, you're always pushing the limits and trying new and different things that are a little bit outside the box of what your traditional, uh, you know, brew methods are that can, have come over from, like you said, Belgium or, you know, Germany or wherever. So I, I, I like that. That's exciting. Is there any benefit to, to having it connected to a chiller? Like if it doesn't cool in 24 hours, would you actually try to chill it down manually? Probably not. Uh, okay. I mean, you would do that. I guess on the front end, and I've just okay. read a few articles, I'd have to kind of research that aspect first and foremost, kind of if we were kind of experiment, but it might be something to try, you know, if we wanted to try something in the summer months or other things. Or right. You'd have also thought of, you know, do we take the cool ship out into an area or something? I do know many, many breweries that have put it on a flatbed and brought it out kind of into, you know, an orchard or, uh, you know, wine vineyard or something like that to kind of get some of the natural microflora that, you know, are spontaneous within those environments as well. That's a cool idea. No pun intended. So you had a really interesting 2022, and I'll bet you really wish you had another time to have helped you out this summer. Can you tell me about the new tap room in Indianapolis? Uh, yeah. So, you know, we've had a good following just at events and other things throughout Indiana, especially we go to quite a few events, you know, in the Annapolis region. Um, we've had beer sales down there to a few uh, other kind of bars or other things. We've had cans at everything from Total Wine to the Market District and so on. So the natural next step is with growth, you know, are there ways of growing and keeping things still kind of internal? So the best way to do that is give folks kind of that same two-time as experience. Um, so we'd been looking kind of throughout 2021 for locations and kind of settled in and found an old brewery and tap room. It used to be Redemption Ale Works and that became available. And I think we kind of settled in on that probably right around December timeframe. So started negotiating kind of with that. And then finally uh, signed lease and everything with that. Um, I believe it was early May and started to build out from there. Luckily, it was more cosmetic than anything. So, you know, redoing floors and ceilings and paint and uh, repairing a few things. And, you know, so with that, my wife and I spent a ton of time down there over two month period, and, but we're able to get everything done within that same two month period. So we got the keys early May and opened up to the public the 1st of July. So congratulations. Pretty, yeah, pretty expansive from that standpoint. So it's been good you know, growing kind of from uh, nothing to kind of, you know, building out kind of that awareness and so on. You know, the Indianapolis market is is large. So, you know, we're continuing yeah. to kind of expand and looking to get into kind of other areas within that. But uh, yeah, growth has been pretty good there. Great. It's really fantastic. How large uh, is the tap room there? Yeah, it, it's, it's slightly smaller. So it, it does have kitchen, some storage. It's mainly the tap room. I believe it's about 3,600, 3,800 square feet. 
they did have a small brewing space, but we don't brew there. So we, we okay. left the drain, trench drains and other things, but really kind of built out a wall kind of around and created some storage. It just was a little bit too small. I think the largest we could fit into that system-wise would be two to three barrels, which is a little on the small side. And to us, it would be more conducive to add tanks and capacity in Fort Wayne. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just purchased a large sprinter van. So we're able to drive half barrels kind of down door to door. We're about an hour, 45 minutes. Okay. Uh, so it's not too bad from that standpoint. That was going to be my next question was whether you had any sort of unique Fort Wayne only or Indianapolis only beers on tap. Is that in the, the long-term plan for you to have any kind of small batch brewing down there or not really? I guess it, it'd be a lot of effort for not a, a lot of return. I, you know, we brew unique stuff all the time. So yeah. to have kind of just small kind of one-off, I think, you know, the the public would want to still kind of get, you know, let's still kind of be in produce kind of Fort Wayne one. So we've thought about it, but, you know, to hire additional brewer, all the equipment and other things, it didn't, right. doesn't make sense. So things that are exclusive to the tap rooms, I mean, we always, you know, have beers or can releases and other things. Sometimes those don't always make it up to a store. So oftentimes, you know, the tap room is the only location to pick up some of that stuff. Other things we do, you know, ultra small batch or limited kind of release. So any, any of our barrel age stuff is often kind of, you know, only tap room. Occasionally uh, there are a few locations that we'll get lucky enough as we produce more to get some of that, but those are the things that we often see kind of are, are unique to tap room below. Yeah. I know that I use the, uh, is it the Osner app and I yep. uh, can get some of your things uh, that are special release. Like I bought the serial killers a couple of years in a row and that's a fun series as well. Yeah. And, and I think that what that does is it allows some flexibility too. So mm-hmm. we've never wanted to have long lines or other things, you know, release day. So, you know, you're given usually about a two week window to kind of, yes. you know, you, you claim it and then just come and pick it up, you know, within a two week period. So that gives them a little bit more flexibility. And we realize not everybody wants to stand in line on a Saturday to just get something that's fresh and new. Yeah, I appreciate that. So it's great to have the options. Do you have a lot of distribution then in Northeast Indiana, or is it mainly just tap room and online sales like that only? We do have a bit, but if you look at it from a percentage of sales, it's still primarily all in taproom. With that, though, we are looking to expand a bit more. I think we're probably throughout Indiana, maybe 20 locations, 25 locations. If you look okay. at restaurants or bars or other things, we've been you know, kind of in the South Bend area for a long time at uh, Citywide up there. So from a, a liquor store perspective and places like Hop Station or some restaurants and bars throughout kind of Fort Wayne have always been supporters of ours and picked up stuff. So we'll continue to do that, but uh, also realizing that Indianapolis is a pretty large market. We're, yeah. we're looking to kind of expand a bit more to different locations and, you know, always looking for or from our fans and customers, you know, where are other spots that we should be in? And uh, I think we could up our production a little bit to, to be conducive to that. So how large of a brewing system do you have there in Fort Wayne to support both tap rooms? So we have a 10 barrel system. That allows us to go as small as a five-barrel batch or 10-barrel batches, which we also kind of double up uh, and go into 20-barrel fermenters. So we have two sets of each size of so two 20s, 
two tens and two five barrel fermenters. So the five barrel or kind of the five barrel batch is roughly about 150, 155 gallons. Um, and then you're just doubling kind of up from there. Okay. I know that you use used barrels for some of your barrel aged stuff. Do you ever have any plan to get a fooder? I've thought about it. We do have the really large punchins right now. So those are 500 liter vessels that we're using kind of like a fooder. There'll be large oak vessels that will kind of continue to use. They're piped and outfitted similar to fooder to just look like large barrels on their sides rather than kind of fooder, which is just a tall kind of barrel tipped on the on end of it. They look nice. I'd have to kind of find kind of the right location yeah. for drainage and other things like that, but they do impart kind of a, a really neat aspect. So the time's right. We might, I like the use of barrels though, because I like the characteristics that each barrel sometimes gives a beer and then you're using some blending techniques to blend in a little bit of character from each one. Yeah. You do a great job with your barrel aged beers. I've had a few. What is your favorite barrel to use with your beer? It depends on the style. So we've used everything. We use a lot of bourbon or rye whiskey barrels for our stouts. Obviously, those are some of my favorite to use there. But, sure. you know, we've used rum barrels, tequila barrels. We've used gin barrels with certain sours. We've used red and white wine barrels. So it depends on, honestly, on the end beer of what we're coming out with. Later this year, we've had a beer, uh, both a stout and a sour that have been in those large punchins, which were cognac uh, barrels. Um, oh, so nice. they've been in there about a couple of years now. It'll be two years this summer. Uh, we'll be releasing both of those beers kind of later on this year. So I'm anxious to kind of see what those taste like. You know, from a, a, an aroma and fragrance standpoint, I'm not a cognac drinker, but the aroma in those barrels was really pleasant. So. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Do you find it a challenge to schedule these things in advance looking ahead, or is it just kind of a natural thing that occurs for you? It's somewhat easy. You just have to plan ahead. So obviously you have you know, your schedule of a beer fermenting. The thing that you want to add to it kind of when you're barrel aging is having a freshly dumped barrel that you know that the spirit was just pulled out of that. So it's fresh. Okay. Um, the fresher the barrel, the less chances of any bacteria getting into the barrel, the less chances of that barrel drying out. Barrel staves dry out very quickly after mm -hmm. they're empty and you have, you go to pump your beer into it and you're leaking right away. And if it's freshly dumped, I mean, usually you still have wet surfaces inside, you have a bit of that spirit. So it really kind of imparts a better flavor and gives the beer a better chance of being excellent. The timing of that is just once understanding whether it's your broker or if you're getting it from the distillery direct, kind of timing that window. So it's best to be in contact and, and talking to them in advance and knowing when they're dumping fresh, but then really also having probably a beer that's fermenting in the tanks that you're kind of timing that window, right? So you ideally like to get those barrels and then be pumping into that within days of receiving the barrels. Likewise, if you're reusing barrels, it's nice not to let those sit too long. So the minute you're pulling beer out, maybe you put beer right back into them. Yeah, there's a lot of intentionality with that, isn't there? Yep. Have you ever used charred barrels before? So a lot of the uh, spirit, the whiskey barrels um, are charred. Okay. I don't know a whole lot about it. That's why I asked. 
Yeah, it depends on the spirit sometimes, and it depends on also the brand. So some, you know, prefer to toast, some do a heavy char that gets some flavors out of it, and it's a mix match kind of with that. So sometimes even within the same distillery, they'll have a blend of toasted, charred, and other things just to kind of get some different flavors imparted. So you do kind of with those, like when we're either dumping ourselves or rinsing out, you know, you'll get some of that char that flakes out kind of from it as well. Thanks. Last call. It's nearly time to wrap things up, but first, one more for the road. This episode, I'm drinking Change of Heart, an experimental cold IPA from Bell's Brewing. From the brewer, have a change of heart? Tell us about it. This series evolves with our brewer's vision for the future. Exclusive? Yes. Experimental? Yes. But it could change your heart for the good. A cold IPA, fruit forward, and piney with a clean, dry finish. Without further delay... So this beer came out of an exclusive Bell's Hearted IPA Variety 12-pack, which contained their flagship Two-Hearted IPA, plus three new IPAs. Hazy-Hearted IPA, Big-Hearted IPA, and this one, the Change of Heart Cold IPA. I know that with Larry Bell's retirement at the end of 2021, many were concerned that the brewery would go the way of many others who have sold out, focusing only on flagship beers, extending distribution, and avoiding any kind of experimentation. Though it's true that Bell's is no longer an independent craft brewery by definition, the folks that work there are no less passionate than before about brewing their beer. I mention often that when given the choice, I'll support a local independent craft brewer before buying something distributed in a big box store. But sometimes, you just have to find out for yourself whether a brewery still has it or not. Having enjoyed all beers but this one in the variety pack thus far, I think the future is bright for Bell's IPA game. So I'm going to go ahead and pour this out into a nice pint glass. It pours a nice light golden color. It has a nice generous white fluffy head. So the first thing I'm, I'm seeing here, this is a, a super clean beer. It's not hazy at all. Almost reminds me of a, a nice uh, pale ale. I mean, it's that transparent. It's got just a great nose. I'm definitely getting some pininess, getting uh, maybe just a little bit of fruitiness, but definitely a pine-forward uh, aroma on this. So first sip impression here. Hmm. Okay. So it's got a nice citrus fruit kind of flavor to it. Uh, looking at the can here, it says it's 6.8% uh, ABV. It's uh, 45 IBUs. Definitely on the tongue I'm getting uh, that nice uh, citrus hop bitterness. Yeah, I'd really like to know what kind of hops are used in this. It's got a little bit of a, an earthiness uh, as it finishes up. So it's got a citrusy kick on the front of the palate and finishes off with a, a nice bitterness. Uh, not overly so, kind of a, surprisingly with the, uh, the clarity of this, it comes across as a, almost a medium uh, kind of bodied beer. So a little bit of mouthfeel there. It's a solid uh, cold IPA. I really like the uh, the citrus profile. I think it's bordering on being a crushable kind of beer. I think you'd want to be a little bit careful that it's upwards of 6%, pushing 7% on this. But, uh, overall, it's just a, a nice, solid uh, IPA. It's not mind-blowing, but certainly it is better than some that, that I've had. So 
If you have not had a chance to check this out from the variety pack, perhaps you'd be able to find one of those in your local bottle shop. Or even if you're close to Bell's Brewing, you could even drop in and check it out. I would give this beer a solid three and a half tasters out of five on the flight board. Cheers, Bells! If you've got a beer you'd like me to drink and describe, leave a comment below. If you're a brewer and have one in mind, direct message me on Instagram and let's see what we can do. Well, that's all for this episode of the 5 Beer Plan. With so many podcasts out there, thanks for choosing to listen to mine. Join me next time as I highlight another hop variety, continue my homebrewing adventure, and wrap up my chat with Tom from Two Toms Brewing in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Remember to hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes. I'd love to hear from you, so please follow me on Instagram, 5BeerPlan2022, and leave a comment to let me know what the highest ABV beer you've ever had is. Be sure to support your local breweries, choose your beers wisely, and drink them responsibly. Until next time, keep walking your ale trail. Stay thirsty, my friends.